it's exciting this morning. We get to start really the book of Galatians. Um, it's exciting for a number of reasons. One, we're going to be in this book a while. So <laughs> through the end of this year and into next, so we're just going to park the car. I'll talk about in a moment how this is a great, really compliment to where we've where we are as a North Lake family. So uh, a lot of that will be a good compliment. Obviously, all, God, all of God's word is profitable. If you go ahead and bow your heads, I know it's busy on Sunday morning, getting ready, making your way here. It's always good to pause, take a deep breath, reset, and say, Lord, would you help us as we glean from your word? Uh, and there's much, much to glean. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We want to be we want to have the right posture and the right disposition that says, Lord, we, if anything insightful is to be taken away, if anything productive in our lives is to be accomplished, if any glory is to be rendered to your name, it will be because your spirit in power elects to use this morning for your great good. And so we ask and plead for this, for we love you. You are worthy of all glory. We put no pride or stock in ourself, our ability, our intuition, Lord. We place ourselves before your feet and we joyfully submit to the authority of your word. We thank you in advance for what you will bring about in our lives through the book of Galatians, the freedom that we will bask in, the grace that we will enjoy and that we will celebrate anew. We thank you in advance in Christ's name, amen. All right, if you are, whether you're new here or you're a long-standing member, it's always good to reiterate what our standard practice here is at North Lake Bible Church. And that is to study and apply God's word verse by verse by verse, uh, teaching one line after another, expositional teaching. And part of that practice is born out of the conviction that all of this book is profitable, 2 Timothy 3.16. Not to mention the fact that the church, us, we are exhorted to teach the whole counsel of God. And one of the most effective ways we can imagine doing that is just going line by line so that nothing is skipped, nothing is shortchanged. And along that way, what we're doing is seeking to extract the meaning that God has already intertwined into his word and resist the temptation to impose upon our own meaning upon the text, something that the church is frequently falling prey to today. And so what we're doing this morning, next Sunday, we're gonna step into chapter one, verses one through five. This morning, we're just gonna take a seat by the pool, dip our feet in, get a sense of what is it that we're gonna be swimming in over the next many months, okay? Uh, one of the most instrumental figures in church history loved this book. His name is Martin Luther. In fact, he called the book of Galatians his little Katie. Why? It's because his love for this book rivaled the love of his own wife, okay? So obviously that's tongue in cheek. That's a little bit of humorous way to try to express his profound appreciation for this book. And why such love for Martin Luther? It's because for a man coming out of the enslavement of a workspace system, where man is supposedly made right with God through the obedience to God's law, the gospel of grace that's emphatically held out to him and declared in the book of Galatians proved for Luther to be an otherworldly sort of liberation. And it is for us as well. And so the Lord has me particularly excited 
for what we have in front of us with the study of this book and even where it falls in the life and ministry of North Lake. On Sunday mornings, our main service, what book are we in, church? Excellent. If we had failed that, we would have been in trouble. So Hebrews, and what has been the grandiose theme that's been on display in the book of Hebrews? Christ is better, the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is greater, right? We've covered he is greater than Moses, right? We're going to see in chapter 7, the Melchizedek priesthood is superior to the Aaronic priesthood. Christ sacrifices of lasting value. Chapter 10, animal sacrifices are not efficacious. Christ's sacrifice is of lasting value. He is superior, okay? Uh, Before that, does anyone remember the book that we were in? Colossians, which was all about? Yes, yes, yes. Shh, he's not here. We don't have to tell him. Okay, the sufficiency of Christ, okay? You see where we're at? Sufficiency, superiority. This morning, we're going to be looking and beginning to look at Galatians, another complimentary epistle, all about the freedom that we have in grace through the work of Christ in Christ alone. For us as a church, we want to remain true to God's gospel, yes? But we also want to be deepening in our love for that gospel. We want to cherish it and grow in it and flourish because of it, amen? If you're taking notes, the main idea, if we had to encapsulate it in one sentence of the entire book would be this, okay? We are set free. God has set us free from the curse of the law through the perfect work of his son so that we can be free to live for him. God has freed us from the curse of the law through the perfect work of his son so that we can be free to live for him. All six chapters in that one sentence. If we wanted to summarize and simplify that even further, friends, we are set free in order to live free, okay? Verse one of chapter five reads the following. It was for freedom. It was what church? Freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Implied there is that that yoke used to be a part of their lives of which we will examine in full. Now for us, where this is apropos is that many today around you oftentimes think of salvation and the Christian life as being somewhat restrictive, don't they? And there is some obligation we have to the law, to be sure, in the sense that because of our love for Jesus Christ, we want to delight in his law. We want to keep it. But when Christ frees us from the curse of the law, friends, we are no longer bound to it in the same way. And it's not that we are free to live however we want to live, but we are free to live how God wants us to how he designed, how he created us. We are free to serve him and to serve others. And so in that sense, Galatians is extremely navigational in our Christian life. It's trajectory setting material, especially in the day and age that we live with our narcissistic culture where there's always a camera staring back at you. And we have whole websites devoted, guess to who? Yourself and the propagating of yourself and what you're about and what's going on in your life. What Galatians does, just as Hebrews, just as Colossians, who does it put in focus? It puts Christ in focus. And it's there that you find meaning, 
and satisfaction and contentment. Friends, this all leads us to the following question to to simply ask, well, why study this book? What are some of the reasons? And there are several fascinating reasons why we would dive into the book of Galatians. Number one is this. The most important question we could ever ask is answered in this great book. The most important question. Indeed, the all-important question of our lives lies at the very center of Galatians. How can we be made right with God? How can I be made right with God? And it's here is where Galatians is so wonderfully helpful. Why is it helpful? I have your attention for a moment. Brothers and sisters, we have many, many erroneous ways in which we set out to answer that very question, do we not? How can I be made right with God? Galatians answers this emphatically and clearly. Now, the whole notion of being set free, which we're examining, implies that enslavement was our previous reality. So I want to encourage you to turn to Romans 6. Romans 6. Again, all of this, toes in the water, just background. Setting up the book, making sure we're approaching it with the right posture. You do not feel the weight of Galatians if you are not tapped into what your prior state was. For starters, enslavement is an appropriate description of our state apart from God. Romans 6 is very, very clear about this. We are slaves of sin, and that enslavement leads leads to what? What's our end? Death. There we go. That's why in verse 17 of chapter 6, what does Paul say? He says, and we're just going to survey this chapter. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Uh, Northlake, what was that teaching? What's the teaching there? What was the message? One word. Six letters. Gospel, right? It was the gospel. It was chapter 6, verse 4, right? That Christ died. And we too have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, and he was, we too might be raised to walk in newness of life. That's, That's the teaching. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. He goes on later in Romans 6, 6 through 7, right? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order for what? That our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to sin anymore. We are now slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, verse 18. We're freed from sin and enslaved to God, which is what true, true freedom is all about. Does that mean we've gotten rid of the flesh entirely? No, not until glory, right? Not until Philippians 3.21, when he will transform the body of our humble state into the body of his glory by the exertion of his amazing power. And we look forward to that day, don't we? Meanwhile, we, we battle we are freed from its consequence, from its penalty. We now have the capacity to live out 
the character of Christ and be marked by righteousness. Look at Romans chapter 8. Flip over a couple of chapters. Romans 8.1 really conveys this same message. You're very familiar with verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has what, church? Set you free from the law of sin and death. Enslavement is an appropriate description of our state apart from God. Secondly, enslavement is an appropriate description of our efforts apart from God. You see, it seems like trying to earn God's favor is a persistent struggle for God's people. Why? It's because we have these legalistic impulses that are such a part of our fallenness that we often, even though we don't admit it, we begin to feel like we have to earn God's love or do something that makes us deserve what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And yet these feelings woefully contradict the clear teaching of the Bible that God's love is unconditional, amen? And his salvation is free. There was a price, but it was a price you didn't have to pay. It was a price paid by another. This is why Galatians represents really the Apostle Paul at his most passionate state among all the epistles. In fact, if you want to see the Apostle Paul at his most zealous, Galatians is that letter. Instead of the warmth and charm that you see in books like Ephesians and Philippians. In the book of Galatians, Paul comes off as rather blunt and often indignant. He is the parent who has watched his child run out into the middle of the road. And the parent can't help but do what? Yell at the top of his lungs, get out of the way. Why? It's because he knows the Galatians are in grave, grave danger. Why? It's because they are drinking from a false teaching well that contradicts the true gospel. This is why when you read Galatians, you get the distinct impression, man, this guy is not messing around. This guy is riled riled up. And why is that the case? It's because he doesn't have time to mess around. The stakes are too high. Souls are at stake. Galatians and Paul, he's very direct and blunt and even forceful in this letter. This is why Galatians is really the only letter that Paul doesn't extend some sort of commendation at the beginning of the book. Making really Galatians unique from any other epistle in the New Testament. Even Corinthians, right? You know the Corinthians, right? Paul even gives a word of commendation to the immoral, immature, worldly, fleshly Corinthians. I want you to listen 1 Corinthians 1.4. I thank my God, always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech, and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God. Friends, when you look at chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul even gives a word of commendation to these. What's going on here? Why no word of commendation 
to the Galatian believers. Well, friends, the difference was that as bad as the Corinthian situation was, and it was bad, the major problem there in Corinth did not pertain to so much right doctrine as it did right living. But in the Galatian churches, on the other hand, the very heart of the gospel was being trampled. And in its place was being offered the gospel of works, which is no gospel at all, but a distortion of God's truth. And if you glean anything away from Romans 3.20, is that a distortion of God's truth leads to condemnation instead of salvation. Romans 3.20 reads, by the works of the law, how much flesh will be justified? No flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's it. It cannot save. The law can enable. The law can empower. And it most assuredly cannot transform. And so Galatians is not some sort of detached theological treaty. But this is a deeply personal letter of a griev- the grieving heart of a godly man for his spiritual children. Get out of the road. Children of his whose faith and living were being undermined by false teachers. And so his heart cry to the Galatian believers is chapter 5, verse 1. Listen up. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. I know you want to go back to that yoke. And I know you have people in your life holding out that yoke to you. Do not be subject again. Which North Lakes, this really leads us to the backdrop of the letter. When we look at the context, and just a pastoral word there, that's, context is always important, right? If you're going to have any thorough, accurate understanding of God's word, you always have to be mindful of what's going on in this time. So we ask, as my voice cracks, I promise I'm a grown man. What compels us, what compels Paul to write with such shepherding force? Why the ferocity? Why the zeal in Paul's letter? Friends, well, not only were the Galatian believers believing a damning doctrine, but if you think about Paul's own life for a moment, Paul himself knew all too well the dangers of legalism, did he not? But he also knew the freedom of grace in his own life. In fact, before we examine what's going on in Galatia, it's probably best to refamiliarize ourselves with what's happened in Paul's life up to this point. Was Paul familiar with the dangers of legalism? Absolutely. You have Paul, whose name was Saul, was a native of Tarsus, lived in a city southeast of Asia Minor, not far from southern Galatia. He was raised in a strict Jewish family, and he was steeped in Jewish tradition and legalism. In fact, if you want an insightful read sometime into Paul's life, just read Acts 22. Not only had he been educated under the famous rabbi Gamaliel, and he carefully trained in Jewish law, and he was, Acts 22, 4 through 5, and even later in Acts 26, verses 10 and onward, tells us that even as Paul was persecuting the church and even imprisoning them and even putting them to death, Paul was doing so with the conviction that he was doing what? He was doing God's will. And church, here's the irony in all of this. 
the summation of Paul's life leading up to that road of Damascus experience is that Paul was a spiritually blind enemy of God who was trying desperately to be a friend of God. His actions were all a faulty attempt to earn God's favor. You're familiar with Philippians 3, yes? Verses 5 and 6. This is Paul. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Fast forward or rewind rather to the book of Galatians chapter 1 verse 14 really encapsulates the same message. Galatians 1.14 reads the following. Before his conversion, he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries, being more extremely zealous for his ancestral traditions. Northlake, here's the beautiful and powerful part of Paul's story that cannot be lost. Look at verse 15 of Galatians 1. Long, long, long before... Saul of Tarsus became a zealous and dedicated legalist. Look at Galatians 1.15. says that God had set him apart even from his mother's womb and called him through his grace. Is that not amazing? More than any other apostle, Paul understood the bondage of the law and the freedom of grace. God set me apart through his grace. This is why Paul is that parent standing out at the edge of the road, yelling at his child to get out of danger. He was pinning his letter to the churches in Galatia to correct their misunderstanding of grace. Why? It's because he knew how sweet and freeing grace truly was. If you look later in chapter 2, you get a sense of what is stirring the pot in Galatia. There's a group of Jewish Christians who Paul refers to as the circumcision group. They're in chapter 2, verse 12. And somehow they had convinced the Gentile Christians in Galatia that they have to both believe in Christ as well as practice Jewish laws and traditions in order for God to be happy with them. And so Paul writes to them a stern letter of rebuke, not to accept any other gospel than the one that was preached to you. For any other gospel that comes to you is no gospel at all. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. What makes salvation good news is that it is free. You do not earn it. This is where the big idea that runs through the book of Galatians rests. God's love is Unconditional, His salvation is a free gift from God that can only be received by faith and responded to in love. That's what grace is. But this truth, and Paul was experiencing this, can be a tough, tough pill to swallow, even for us today. Why? It's a tough pill to swallow because you and I are conditioned to believe that nothing is free. And because of that conditioning... Coupled with our fallenness, we feel compelled to do something to earn God's kindness. 
And I want you to assess this in your own life over the next few weeks and months. There are vestiges of that everywhere in all of us. We have this idea that we have to do something or have to perform in some way to earn what we get from God. And so the truth of the gospel sweeps in, and it will over the next few months, that God's grace and God's love is free and unconditional, which often seems too good to be true. Which is all the more reason why we need to, as Paul says, stand firm in the gospel, as Galatians 5.1 tells us to. It's because the gospel that Paul personally received from the Lord stresses that grace cannot be earned. It can only be received. There are no spiritual hoops that you have to jump through. There's no list of rules and regulations that need to be obeyed. There, there's no amount of biblical knowledge that you need to have or helping the poor or going on some sort of crusade or righteous cause. You need to simply hear the gospel and respond with faith and repentance. There is nothing, let me repeat, nothing you can do to earn salvation or to make God love you any more than he does right now. Salvation is free, and his love is unconditional. But still, with all of that being said, there's something inside of us as human beings that makes us reluctant to accept God's love as it truly comes to us. This strong, innate expression of fallenness is evident in Paul's own history within the church in the area. This is when we begin to tap into now Galatia. What's going on? Let's take a moment just to connect to the pain and grief of Paul's heart for this particular church. We have a map here today. Guys, is there anything I can do for the popping? No. Okay, excellent. Make sure it's not me. All right. So there's a map here. Forgive the fuzziness. Low res. Galatia was a Roman-ruled region in Central Asia Minor. It's now modern-day Turkey for you and I. It covered an area of some 250 miles north to south and another 175 miles east to west. And this particular letter was more than likely originally written to the southern part of Galatia of that small region. And we know this because Paul, on his first missionary journey, he and Barnabas established four churches in the southern part of this province, in the cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. It's Acts 13 and 14 if you want to read it later. And we know from the content of this letter that Paul had at one time personally ministered to those that he's now writing. You see it later in chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. And what was Paul's time like in Galatia? Well, for one, we know that his ministry there started off exceedingly well, extremely well. In fact, look at Galatians 4, 15 for a moment. It tells us that Paul and his message was so warmly received that Paul felt as if they would have literally gouged out their own eyes and given them to him. That's a warm reception. That's a, that's a commendation of trust and reception. Massive amounts of reception and love for the apostle. But we also know from Galatians 4, 13 through 15, that his time there was also not without its share of trials. You see, Paul became incredibly, incredibly sick in Galatia. And that wasn't the only trial. Not only did sickness nearly take his life, we know from Acts 14 that being sick was a small thing compared to being stoned 
and left for dead, which is what occurred at the hands of the antagonistic Jewish leaders there in the area. Again, just turn to Acts 14 sometime. See, the reality is, is that when we, when we say Paul's at the side of the street yelling for his children to get out of the road, this is, Paul literally left his life, almost lost his life in Galatia on more than one occasion. So you have to forgive him for being somewhat passionate for these people. Paul knew what it was to be stalked by this same group of angry and dangerous legalists who followed him literally from Antioch to Iconium all the way to Lystra. Acts 14 goes on to tell us that this is exactly what the gospel does, does it not? It's what fueled first century Christians to be faithful as they were nailed to crosses. It's what compelled those during the Reformation to remain true to the gospel even while being burned at the stake. It's what stirs individuals like Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, William Carey, Mary Slessor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and countless others to give their life for the cause of Christ and the advancement of his name. This is what the gospel does in people's lives. It emboldens them. It obsesses them. Acts 14, after establishing a church in Dur, Paul and Barnabas says he revisited these three cities. Strengthening the souls, Acts 14 says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. On his second missionary journey later in Acts 16, 1 through 5, Paul visited the Galatian churches with Silas this time. And listen to what he does. Delivering decrees which had been decided upon. This is the Jerusalem council, right? Acts 15, God was accepting Gentiles among his people by his grace. Something Jews had a problem with. Delivering decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Paul saw the work of the gospel with his own eyes in the city of Galatia. So friends, no wonder Paul's heart was absolutely exploding for these people. They were being led astray from the very life-giving gospel that they had at one time received with open arms. Imagine that for a moment. You've raised your child and you're... On the whole, you're pleased with the trajectory of their life. And then they leave your home, or, or you leave, right? You move away, and they stay there, as the believers in Galatia did. And then you begin to hear reports that someone has crept in among them, and now leading them astray. How do you feel as a parent? Mama Bear is not happy, right? We would not be happy, and nor is Paul. So there is no word of commendation. Okay, he jumps right into it, for the stakes are far too high. We're going to be wonderfully enriched and blessed, encouraged and stirred to be faithful in our lives, as we will see in chapters 5 and 6 through the book of Galatians. I want you to be spending the next few weeks, be in prayer, be reading the book of Galatians, be reading the book of Acts, right there specifically, 13 through 16. Even go on to chapter 22. Read it, consume it, familiarize yourself with it. In terms of our frame, right, what are the studs to this house? Uh, we're going to be looking at the book in really three sections, okay? 
There's the personal section in chapters 1 and 2. Grace is declared in Paul's message, it's demonstrated in his life, and it's defended in his ministry. You see chapter 2, he has to do a lot of defending. There are individuals who have crept in among them, but there's even apostles that are starting to be swayed, and he literally has to rebuke the apostle Peter. And so there's this personal component. It's this consistent opposition is mounting in Galatia. In, in the second section, it's richly doctrinal, okay? You see this grace and law on display. And chapters three and four, like really, as you can imagine, is really the hinge of the book, is it not? I mean, all of the personal words of encouragement and exhortation and rebuke and all of the exhortation and pleading to live faithful lives, walk by the Spirit, has to rest on an appropriate and clear an accurate understanding of theology. And there's a lot of confusion. And so if Paul's going to come in, he's not going to sway them with a lot of rhetoric, right? Second Corinthians. He came not with eloquent speech, but with a simple message, Christ and him, him crucified. And so he's going to work through six really profound arguments in this section, supporting the very truth that he had told the church in Rome, right? Rome, Romans 3.20. We read it a second ago. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin, knowledge of sin. And he's going to argument after argument after argument. He's going to fire that across the bow. And what is he doing? He's dismantling the message of those dangerous Jewish legalists, the circumcision group. Then he closes in chapters 5 and 6. There's grace and how it intertwines with the Christian life. Friends, grace not only makes spiritual progress possible, of which we are thankful. I mean, there's no spiritual progress without being born again, yes? Otherwise, Ephesians 2, we are but dead, (laughs) lifeless, no capacity to do anything towards the direction of God. Our wills are inclined away from God and towards sin and self. That's all we know. And so grace not only makes spiritual progress possible, That grace, that gospel which states that we are made right by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. But grace, listen, is also what fuels our advancement. It's the means by which we strive and labor. And he's going to unpack that over chapters 5 and 6. You're very familiar with them. How do we live what we learn and what are some of the takeaways for you and I to chew on between now and next Sunday and beyond? Let me just give you a few. What's the contribution of Galatians to the Christian life? I'll give you three. It's relevant to our hearts. It's relevant to our minds. And it's relevant to our progress. It's relevant to our hearts. Number one, how does this connect with us in the 21st century? We are 2,000 years removed from its original recipients. We're removed away from the requirement of circumcision for salvation being pushed upon God's people. No one's telling you today that you must be circumcised in order to be right with God, like the Galatians were being told. That's not the case for us, and we're thankful for that. First of all, God's word, due to the nature and character of it, and due to the nature and character of its author, 
we know it's timeless, amen? God's word is always relevant. Secondly, while you and I do not wrestle with the notion that we need to be circumcised in order to be a Christian, we still share the same fallenness and the same proclivities that erroneously seek to augment or supplement the gospel in some way. We wrestle with it all the time. And so we share the same patch of redemptive history as the Galatians did, to be sure. But we also share the same humanity, the same fallenness, in the sense that while we may not struggle with whether or not we need to be circumcised, there are plenty of things by virtue of the inherent sin within us that we try to replace or we try to subsidize the all-sufficient work of Christ in our lives, as impossible as that may be. And it is. And so, friends, while you and I do not face physically and tangibly the opposition of legalistic Judaizers, I don't have any of those people around me. I have the same bent. It may take subtle but equally gross form in my life that I and you need to be perceptive to. I want you to spend the next couple weeks just thinking about, Lord, search me. See if there be any inoffensive way in me. Psalm 119, right? Would you help me see that? See how you respond to sin. Is there any notion that you have to do a certain degree of counterbalance things in order to approach God in prayer? Or do you approach him confident in his grace, repentant, contrite, humble, knowing that that grace is there perpetually and that you are his? There's nothing you have to do to earn your relationship with him. This is relevant to our hearts. This is also relevant to our minds. The book of Galatians continues to address several current, even present day scriptural mishandlings of the Bible. For instance, we have today what is called the new perspective on Paul, and we will not get into the weeds of this. In a nutshell, the new perspective of Paul, just to put it on your radar, is a form of thought that was planted in the 70s and has now made its way in the church and germinated in the writings of N.T. Wright and James Dunn. N.T. Wright has written several, several volumes on the gospel, and yet the more that you read N.T. Wright, the less you understand what he affirms. It's confusing, it's ambiguous, it's contradictory, it's academic sleight of hand. And personally, while I cannot figure out what N.T. Wright believes, it is crystal clear what he does not believe. I want you to listen to a book, one of his more famous works, The Day the Revolution Began. I'm gonna reference why this is important in a second. N.T. Wright writes, we have paganized our understanding of salvation, substituting the idea of God killing Jesus to satisfy his wrath for the genuinely biblical notion we are about to explore. In other words, for centuries, all of those of the church who have believed in the substitutionary death of Christ have been worshiping a paganized perversion of biblical truth that he's now about to clarify for you, of which you are grateful. I know, sarcasm. He goes on to write that Christ died in the place of sinners is closer to the pagan idea of an angry deity being pacified by human death than it is to anything either in Israel scripture or the New Testament. And so friends, let me be clear. It's clear what N.T. Wright rejects. 
It's substitutionary atonement of Christ. It's imputation of righteousness. And in truth, what N.T. Wright is rejecting is the gospel as conveyed in the New Testament. He goes on to write, not to give him too much airtime, but this is important. To worship God as one who justifies through sacrifice and by imputation is nonsense. If we use the language of the law court, it makes no sense whatsoever to say that the judge imputes, imparts, bequeaths, conveys, or otherwise transfers his righteousness to either the plaintiff or the defendant. Righteousness is not an object, a substance, or a gas which can be passed across the courtroom. This gives the impression of a legal transaction, a cold piece of business, almost as a trick of thought performed by a God who is logical and correct, but hardly one we want to worship. Why harp on this particular erroneous theologian? You want to know why? Christianity Today named N.T. Wright one of the top five theologians of our time. That's why the book of Galatians is important. He goes on to write, he further says, no one will be justified until he reaches heaven. And there's a lot of faulty doctrine there in that statement. And the implications, friends, is absolutely terrifying. One more painfully clear denial are in these words. I must stress again that the doctrine of justification by faith is not what Paul means by the gospel. The gospel is not an account of how people get saved. Church, I have no idea what N.T. Wright believes, but we know what he doesn't believe. He doesn't believe 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand. And what does it say? By which you also are saved. The gospel is about man being made right with a holy God apart from any doing of their own. All of grace. North Lake, these are troubled times to be sure, and we have to ask, what kind of people are we going to be? We're going to be a church that remains true to the gospel, first and foremost. We're going to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, as Paul implored us to be. Number three, it's not only relevant to our hearts and relevant to our minds, but it's relevant to our progress. Gospel progress, spiritual progress. The law is good, yes? The law is good. It is that mirror which helps us see our sin. It's productive in our lives, but as good as the law is, it never gives God's people the power to obey them. It cannot. It doesn't have the capacity. And in contrast, the good news is that Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. And now he lives in us through his spirit. Right? We know this in Hebrews 4.15. We'll get to it in a moment. He was tempted in every way, but without sin. Matthew chapter 5. Right? I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Romans 8. What the law could not do, as weak as though it was in the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of human flesh and as a sin offering. God did. He fulfilled the law. Christ fulfilled every bit of it. And in so doing, he made his people into new humans who fulfill the law by loving God and loving others. We see this labeled as the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, of which you're familiar, and it contrasts the deeds of the flesh. But the fruit of the spirit, and you know this in your own life, it is not automatic, is it? 
It's not perpetually in existence in your life. It has to be cultivated. And the gospel in which we stand is what makes that cultivation possible. It compels us to prune off old habits. And then as we are carried along by the spirit of God, we find new habits to put in their place. Righteous habits, good habits, God-honoring habits that now grow in those freshly pruned areas of our lives. Through the spirit, Jesus makes us into a people who love him and to love others. It brings about transformation and it fuels gospel progress. Friends, I would encourage you here today, if you are here this morning and you are trying to make spiritual progress, apart from the daily empowering that comes from applying the gospel, and you are spinning your wheels and you are striving, that is not only, let me be clear, that is not only a recipe for disaster, it's also a recipe to be massively and woefully disappointed. If you are in Christ today, the gospel is what compels you to love God and to love others. Not solely you pulling up yourself up by your bootstraps. By all means, Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why do we work it out? Because I love Christ and I have been saved by grace. Lose sight of that and we stumble. Stand, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. I will close with this. If you are not in Christ today, true salvation is totally, totally dependent upon God's grace. And once you get this, and once you allow this truth of the real gospel to penetrate your heart, you begin to live in freedom. You begin to know what true freedom is. You freedom from the fear of losing God's love. Freedom from guilt and shame and condemnation when you do something that doesn't measure up, and we do all the time. The gospel is the good news. And the good news is that God is for you and not against you. Romans 8, right? That God loves you right now as much as he will ever love you, and that salvation is a free gift that he makes available to anyone who will receive it by faith. My hope and prayer over the next few weeks is that as you and I read the book of Galatians, is that you will find freedom in God's gift of grace and that you and I will come to truly understand his amazing and unconditional love. That is our prayer, amen? And God will make it so for his glory. The true gospel sets us free. If you'll bow your heads, let's thank the Lord for his grace. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, just the entirety of it, but specifically, we want to thank you for Galatians. And again, all that you will accomplish in our lives, you will reveal things in us of which are incredibly ugly and unpleasant and things that we didn't even know were there. I pray that you would search us, leave no stone unturned if anything needs to be washed and removed and pruned and trimmed away. Lord, would you reveal it? Would you convict us? And give us a sound, wonderfully freeing understanding of what the gospel is. And I, Lord, I pray that a, a few things would ensue from this work. I pray that our worship of you would become more fervent and sincere. I pray that our lives would be marked by a greater degree of faithfulness unto Christ. Lord, we are all imperfect sinners. And so we marvel that you would be a, a God who would lavish us with grace 
and you would save us through the work of your son. We merit nothing but your wrath. So we're moved this morning. We're overwhelmed with thankfulness and we pray that that would even temper our next hour, that our singing and our worship of you would would be sweet and pleasing in your sight. And Lord, if there be anyone who enters into the door of this church and does not know Christ, does not know this grace and this gospel, Lord, we pray that you would delight in saving sinners to yourself, opening up eyes and causing new life to reside where death used to reign. Lord, would you do this for your glory? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.